Welcome back to Network 5 Emergency Medicine Journal Club. All right, everyone. So we'll move on to our third paper for the day. We're going to be covering the pregnancy adapted years algorithm for the diagnosis of suspected pulmonary embolism. And we've got a guest speaker, Vanessa Wong, who's one of the physician trainees in our area. And um, she's going to be talking about the paper and some of the strengths and weaknesses of the study. So Vanessa, it's yours. Thanks for that. So I'm going to present the Pregnancy Adapted Years Algorithm for the Diagnosis of Suspected PE, which was a Nejim journal article that was published quite recently in 2019. This one is actually looking particularly at pregnant women as a cohort population as an adaptation of the initial years algorithm paper, which was released several years prior. And so we all know that pulmonary embolism is quite common in the Western world. And I think there's a particular fear with this as it is known as a leading cause of maternal death, particularly sort of in pregnant women. But I think the difficulty often with scanning patients for diagnoses and in terms of our regular sort of PE pathway protocols that we do, there is always concerns about radiation, both to the mother, but also um, radiation exposure to the fetus, particularly within sort of the first trimester or second trimester, where sort of um, important organs are being formed and the concerns that high dose radiation may affect sort of the child development. So just in terms of with this study, so this was published in Anegem in 2019 by a group of studies. So they were part of the Artem study um, investigators and uh, it looked, was a prospective study looking at pregnant women with suspected PEs as a diagnosis and so it was a multi-centre study that was conducted internationally sort of I think there were 18 hospital sites in total so 11 of them were academic and seven were teaching hospitals and it was done over a five-year period from October 2013 through to May 2019 and in terms of with their inclusion criteria they looked at pregnant women over the year of 18 that had been referred either to ED or the obstetric ward due to some concerns of potential suspected PE and this was sort of defined as either sort of new onset or worsening chest pain or shortness of breath with or without hemoptysis or tachycardia. This was based off the year study that was the Netherlands trial that looked at the diagnostic years criteria algorithm for clinically suspected PEs. So what the years algorithm is, is generally when we're looking at our workup for PEs, particularly in the emergency department, often one of the most common screening tools we use is the Wells criteria. And so what the year study actually looked at was the three most common components which they thought were the highest yield with the Wells criteria and putting this in conjunction with D-dimer to see if they could accurately sort of predict PEs and reduce the need for sort of um, further investigation such as CTs, pulmonary angiography or VQ, so ventilation perfusion scanning. However, the initial years study looked at both sort of men and women, but there was actually very few pregnant women within that study. So I think even though it wasn't a significant exclusion criteria, I think just the way with the enrollment, they actually had quite a limited number of pregnant women. So the data on that in terms of its accuracy with pregnancy was sort of low that it wasn't clinically significant enough. So that's why this subgroup of investigators decided to do a pregnant women only study to see whether or not some of these things could be translated into real life practice. 
And so when they designed their algorithm, so this pregnancy adapted years algorithm, looked at suspected pregnant women. And then what they did was there was a D-dimer test performed and they would assess for the presence of the three years criteria, which they defined as one was clinical signs of a deep vein thrombosis, two hemoptysis, or three pulmonary embolism as the most likely diagnosis of symptoms. In patients that had clinical signs of a DVT, they went on for Doppler ultrasounds of the leg. And if that was positive then, then they would be presumed to have had a PE and they would start initial anticoagulation treatment. In ones that had a normal one, they were further readjusted and this was divided sort of into four sections. The first two subgroups were those that didn't meet any years criteria. If their D-dimer was less than 1,000 nanograms per mil, then it was thought that a pulmonary embolism was ruled out and they were not commenced on any anticoagulation treatment. If they had no years criteria symptoms but had quite a high elevated D-dimer, which they defined as greater than 1,000 nanograms per mil, they went on to have a CTPA. And only if there was a positive binding on the CTPA would anticoagulation treatment be started. The other two sides looked at those that had one to three positive of the use criteria. And then also similarly looked at the D-dimer, but the D-dimer threshold cutoffs were slightly different in these two groups. So if they had one to three of the use criteria symptoms and a low D-dimer, so less than 500 nanograms per mil, it was thought that P could be ruled out and anticoagulation was withheld. And those with one to three use criteria, but a higher D-dimer, so greater than 500 nanograms per mil, they went on to have a CTPA. And similarly, if AP was found on CTPA, they were commenced on treatment. So that was sort of how they subdivided their group. And in terms of what they were looking at was their primary outcome was looking at the cumulative incidence of symptomatic VTE on objective testing during a three-month follow-up period, particularly in the subgroup of patients in whom anticoagulation treatment was withheld on the basis of falling into the criteria of either no use criteria with a D-dimer less than 1,000 nanograms or one to three of the use criteria, but a D-dimer less than 500 nanograms per mil. And so they wanted to see how effective was using this as a method of stratifying patients in terms of accuracy and sort of avoiding further tests. In terms of their secondary outcome was they were looking at the proportion of patients in whom CTPA was not indicated to safely rule out a PE. So we had a total of 510 pregnant women were recruited into the study at 18 participating hospitals. It was actually quite a sort of the breakdown of patients. There was, it was skewed slightly more towards the third trimester of pregnancy. So that was about 46% of the recruited trial participants. So slightly more than majority. In those sort of with those patients in total out of the 510, there are about 30 patients that had a previous history of VTE and 14 that had known thrombophilia. So those two would be, so a history of previous PEs and known thrombophilia generally we would associate with a higher risk of having a recurrent sort of PE or DVT. So of the 510 that were initially recruited, about 12 were excluded. So full dose anticoagulation treatment prior was a reason for exclusion. Four, surprisingly, were not actually pregnant. And a few were rejected because one was thought not to have actually a PE, in fact. And a few had the contraindications for CTPs and a couple did not have D-dimer testing. So a total of 498 patients were included in this study. And of those... Four of them actually had signs and symptoms of uh, DVTs. And so they went on to have a positive finding on their lower limb Doppler study. So they didn't actually go on to being substratified because they were classified as patients that were presumed to have PEs and were started on full anticoagulation.
So that left with 494 that could be further restratified um, according to their D-dimer and years algorithm. And of those, it was actually a roughly sort of 50-50 split. So we had about 252 of those patients that didn't meet any of the years criteria and 242 that met between one to three of the years criteria. When we looked at those that didn't meet the years criteria, it was roughly about 164, so about two-thirds of them had quite a low D-dimer, so less than 1,000 nanograms, and 88 of them had an elevated D-dimer, greater than 1,000 grams per mil. With those, surprisingly, rate of P's that was actually found were quite low. So of the one 88 that had an elevated D-dimer, unfortunately, 13 of them didn't undergo a CTP as per the initial protocol. But of the rest that did, only one had a confirmed P with CTPA scanning. And this was actually gone and detected on VQ scanning, which was not in the original protocol because the protocol was mainly for CTPA scanning only. Of the ones that had a negative D-dime less than 1,000, there was a protocol violation where 11 did actually have it undergo a CTPA anyway, but none of them were actually positive for a P. And only one of these patients had a DVT at follow-up. In terms of those that met one to three of the years criteria, it was actually proportionally split slightly differently. So only 30 of those patients had a low D-dimer and on follow-up, there were no events. In terms of the majority of those, actually uh, 211 had an elevated D-dimer. So this was greater than 500 nanograms per mil. And I guess a question of that is because the threshold cutoffs for these D-dimers were slightly lower compared to the no years criteria, whether or not that's why a significant portion of these patients were Build that. So in total, oh, 199 actually underwent a CTPA, one underwent a VQ scan instead, and for some reason 11 of them didn't actually go on to have a CTPA. But of this sort of 200 population, uh, 15 of them had APE confirmed. It was only one patient out of the 500 that had a VTE on lower limb Dopplers at follow-up, and no patients received a diagnosis of P during their follow-up. When you sort of broke down sort of the median D-dimer levels during sort of the different quartiles of their pregnancy, the median D-dimer was 500 nanograms per milliliter during first trimester, 730 in second trimester, and 1,120 in third trimester, which probably actually meant that most of the patients that presented in the third trimester would have actually had quite a high elevated D-dimer. And this sort of does correlate with the fact that originally we know pregnancy does cause stasis and increase your D-dimer. And that's why I think we were always looking at whether or not we could risk stratify because we know that looking at D-dimer alone in pregnant women is not as accurate. And so from this study, what it showed in terms of with the results was that in a majority of patients using the pregnancy adapted years algorithm, they were able to rule out sort of the diagnoses of PE in pregnant women. And it was slightly more accurate than just using a D-dimer alone. And they managed in about 39% of patients out of their 500 were able to avoid having a CTPA, which does reduce their risk of sort of potential radiation exposure, both to the mother and the fetus. When you actually looked at the breakdown of those that avoided CTPAs, that we found that majority of them, so 60 65% of patients during the first trimester were able to avoid it, but only about 32% in the third trimester. And this does follow along with what we were seeing with the D-dimers being more elevated in third trimester, which did mean that they were more likely to fall into the algorithm where they've had one to three years criteria symptoms and also an elevated D-dimer above the 500 threshold. And in that instance, the recommendation at that time was for a CTPA. But there were a significant proportion that were cleared from having a P and did not require a CTPA. And we could see from this study that on follow-up a majority of those didn't actually have any PEs or lower limb DVTs. 
I guess the, in terms of potential limitations of this, so while we were looking at it, it was the good thing is it was a prospective study. However, I guess the question is, generally these patients were presenting because there was some initial reason why they were suspected to have a PE. And so there is a question about can we sort of apply this study to the general population of pregnant women who may have non-specific chest symptoms as opposed to presenting with hemoptysis, tachycardia or sort of chest pain or increasing dyspnea. And I guess the question is one of those part of that criteria is whether or not we think PEs is the most likely diagnosis. And if we're referring people in for suspected PEs, you'd expect a large proportion of those to have PEs as a most likely diagnosis. But I guess the question is, you know, generally when we're looking at Wells Christ score anyway, there is the suspicion for suspected PE. And that's been sort of something that's always been as part of our Wells criteria. So I think in terms of the accuracy of us saying that this isn't an accurate study because most of them we do suspect as having a P would probably be non-valid because we do the same thing when we're sort of seeing people in the emergency department and we're doing the simple Wells criteria initially. I guess the question that they did wonder in their study was about the D-dimer. So it wasn't quite clear with the patients that were recruited whether or not the physician that did the year's criteria had access to the results of the D-dimer before or after they sort of stratified with their use criteria. And so, you know, the thought could always be if someone had seen the D-dimer result and it was particularly low, would this have changed their opinion? Um, Would they maybe have said that PEs are less likely to be the big diagnosis? Conversely, if there was a high D-dimer, would this have caused some bias where the clinician looking after them thinks that they have a higher probability of having a PE? and therefore may have said, yes, I think PE is the most likely diagnosis. But I guess similarly, you know, in practice generally, it is one of those things where you don't really have a good idea when the D-time is going to come back. So I think clinically similar to the Wells criteria, you know, often you may have your D-dimer beforehand or you may have it afterwards. And so clinically, I think this study does, the fact that we don't know for sure, it does reflect the emergency time practice more accurately. And I guess the other problem, particularly with this study, was the fact that it was non-randomized because it was based on a quite set algorithm. And there were a surprising number of protocol violations. So within the you know sub-cohort where we thought we were able to successfully rule out a P, 11 out of the 100 164 that didn't meet years criteria and had a low D-dime did go on to have a CTPA anyway. You know, there were about 13 and 11 of those that had higher D-dimers and we'd had As part of this algorithm, the plan was to undergo a CTPA, but they, for some reason, didn't. I think it's quite difficult with this study to see, you know, the justifications for the two that went on to have a VQ scanning and what the actual reason for that. But I think as a part of a study, the fact that a different modality with one of them actually being positive for a P was used to diagnosis does sort of question, I guess, a bit about how they actually went on to this study in terms of the stringency that they had during the study protocol. But I think overall, from what we could see with this was it actually reinforced their initial year's study that we had, where you have a subset of patients for pregnant women. And I think in conjunction with looking at objective things like a D-dimer, but also using risk stratifications, such as using years criteria as, a, I guess, a smaller and easier subset of the Wells criteria, it does look like in those that have low PEs and not many symptoms, we are able to say, 
I think, on a risk balance proportion that a lot of these may actually not need further scanning. And this might have a potential to avoid sort of extreme sort of radiation exposure, both to mum and fetus. Thanks for that, Vanessa. You covered most of the salient strengths and weaknesses, I think, and it was a really good and robust discussion of some of the statistical sort of issues with the study itself, particularly when it comes to the heterogeneity of some of the practice that was going on whilst this study was being conducted. I think the two most important points that, at least as an ED physician, I feel like you raised, um, and I'd love to put to the registrars here, Caroline and Kit, which patient is not going to have PE as the most likely diagnosis? Because that's really the issue with this scoring system, right? Like, I mean, simplify it as much as you want. And Vanessa alluded to that. Patients come to the ED, you get this GP letter that's just like query PE, right? Um, and obviously, that's the concern that the GP or referring clinician has had. So, Kit, could I pick your brain? What pregnant patient would not have PE as the most likely diagnosis? I think you've said everything that you need to there in that question, really. My problem with any scoring system that weighs quite so heavily on such a subjective metric, particularly in in a condition like PE that's so difficult to diagnose really and presents in so many different ways, there there is no kind of overt PE constellation that is that is consistent. And that's that's my worry. We've got a population here that is automatically at significantly higher risk of PEs. And so I'd actually have to feel pretty compelled not to pursue that, really. Yeah, it's funny because for me, those patients, I'm like, oh, you don't really have a PE. And then I'm like, well, why am I doing this in the first place then? Like, why am I asking those questions? Caroline, what were your thoughts? I was going to say, occasionally you just pray for the chest x-ray to show like a pneumonia or something (laughs) as an alternative cause for pleuritic pain. But then... I think for me, whenever the question of PE is raised in a pregnant or non-pregnant patient, it's really hard to get out of your head after that. But I think in the context of maybe a pneumonia or a pneumothorax. So you'd, you'd, need a, you'd personally need a compelling alternative diagnosis. I'm not saying you're right or yeah, wrong. Yeah. I'm just no, for me, at my level, yeah. I don't trust my gestalt enough to go, well, I just don't think this patient looks like they have a PE. But if I have compelling data to suggest they've got another cause for their pleuritic pain then I might be more comfortable leaving it at that in those very, very few rare moments. Yeah, I agree. Look, it's a difficult call to make. And I usually ask at least one other person if I really, really think the pregnant patient has a PE. I do have some stats on the radiation risk and cancer risk and stuff of fetuses exposed to stuff, if that's of help to anyone. I mean, I think we all agree that minimising radiation exposure to mum and bub is really, really important. But the stats that I've got is just living on Earth for a year, you'll get a uh, background radiation of about three millisieverts. And with a CTPA, you get about 12 millisieverts, which is a bit more than five years worth of background radiation. Now, in terms of the amount of radiation that the fetus gets, uh, and I get this information from uh, an ACI guideline that comes from our Panzer Evidence. This was published in 2012, really easily Googleable. Is the the background risk of childhood cancer in general is one in 500. The additional risk of childhood cancer from one CTPA is somewhere between one in a million to one in 100,000. So. You don't want anybody to get it, but that risk is quite low. And the guidelines also say that if the fetus is exposed to less than 100 millisieverts of radiation, they don't expect fetal demise, growth, retardation, abnormal growth or intellectual or uh, emotional underdevelopment to occur. So 
it's maybe not as dire as I mm. thought it was when I was a junior edge before I researched this stuff, but it still does make me a little bit nervous about doing a CTPA on a, on a pregnant woman. Mm. And when I talk to the mum about the risks and benefits of those scans, these are sort of roughly the numbers that I would give them in, in simplified terms of background radiation and, and cancer risks and things like that. That tends to ally a lot of the concern, but not all of it. In terms of who I think is most likely to have the PE, well, I mean, the statistics in this article show that most of them don't. Mm. So they enrolled nearly 500 women and very few of them actually had a PE. And this is a population that's much more likely to have a PE. So we screen lots and lots of women. I think the big thing that we really worry about is if we miss it, it's potentially catastrophic. Even as a senior doctor, I would include someone else's expert thinking as Mm. well, just to get their additional input to make me more comfortable with, with the big decision of scan, not scan, radiation exposure. Vanessa, did you have any thoughts on what makes PEB a, a more or less likely diagnosis? What does that person look like when they're pregnant? So I think the difficulty is, you know, we get these third trimester predominantly and similar to this study, pregnant women, and they've come in because they're slightly more tachycardic, they're short of breath. And you wonder, you know, is this just because they're now carrying this 30 week old baby in their tummy, their abdomen's stretched, their diaphragm's pushed up because increased sort of shortness of breath and heart rate to an extent is normal in third trimester pregnancy. But like Alwyn was saying, what you don't want to miss is something that's so you know potentially devastating because you know large saddle peas do come with that mortality rate both you know while they're pregnant but also sort of during the delivery process and so I think things are similar to what Caroline was saying I think if you can confidently find a alternative explanation I think that makes you a lot more comfortable in sort of saying look I definitely don't think this person has a pea because they've got lit infiltrates in their lungs or you know they've got a clear cardiac cause for the fact that they've got chest pain and tachycardia. I think things that you'd probably want to look at, you know, just in general would be, you know, looking, which does sort of fall into our general algorithm is, do they have signs that make you more suspicious? So if they've got signs and symptoms that might suggest a DVT, you're thinking that that they're more high risk to have a PE. And also looking at things like your oxygen levels. However, you know, oxygen levels in most pregnant women, if they're young with that sort of lung comorbidities, they do tend to sort of compensate a little bit before they become hypoxic unless they're having sort of a really large saddle pee. But I think people that are hypoxic, definitely that's something that makes me even more concerned that they might have something potentially like a pee going on. Yeah, it's interesting. I think back to what Caroline was saying, the reason that it's so difficult in pregnancy is because the physiology of pregnancy overlaps so significantly with the pathology of pulmonary embolism. And so the real question is not, does the patient have a pneumonia, but it's more like, is this just normal third trimester stuff uh, rather than a pulmonary embolism? It's interesting that, Vanessa, you mentioned third trimester and the studies actually, this study at least bears out that maybe we should be treating first trimester patients differently to second and third trimester patients in terms of our use there. And the median rise in that D-dimer level throughout the course of pregnancy suggests that that might be a future avenue for exploration in this particular patient population. Personally, when I've used this score, I've found it to be most beneficial in that first trimester population. I found that I'm not good enough to tell in a third trimester lady whether this is pregnancy-related elevations in minute ventilation, diaphragmatic issues due to a large uterus causing this shortness of breath versus in a someone who's seven weeks pregnant 
I feel much more confident in that age group with my clinical gestalt, probably because I see more patients who are, who are that pregnant who come in with shortness of breath and vague chest discomfort. That appears to be a reasonably common presenting complaint, or at least that's where I find this diagnostic dilemma. And I think in that particular population subset, I approach with a greater degree of confidence just with my clinical gestalt. If I had to pick what am I looking for specifically, I don't know if I'd be able to tell you but I don't necessarily actively seek an alternative diagnosis necessarily there. I probably would more aggressively with those patients with a, a later gestation. And so, yeah, that's the, the other challenge. It's interesting that you raise the radiological consequences or the radiation-related consequences of this and whether or not it's actually such a big deal, I guess, in, ten, in the sense of we probably went from not really caring about radiation to then just like caring a lot about it. And now do we care too much about it? It's really hard to know. I guess it's one in a hundred thousand for the population, but then it's a hundred percent for the patient. Yeah. I guess that's the concern. Just on the radiation risk, the other thing that I find difficulty to find specific data on, but have been raised as a concern in the past is the risk to the mother in terms yep. of breast tissue, breast tissue which yeah. is pro proliferating mm -hmm. and the lifetime risk that carries for breast cancer. And I've definitely had patients with family histories of breast cancer where I haven't necessarily been able to give them the exact numbers thereafter, but I've definitely felt even more hesitant to pursue that scan in that context. I, I don't know if yeah. anyone has the specific stats for CTPA with proliferating breast tissue in no, pregnancy? I don't think there's very good. I mean, even this data is pretty pathetic. If you look at it from the extrapolation of, that's why the numbers are like one in a hundred thousand to one in a million. That's like an exponentially <laughs> large. And those numbers are like meaningless when you tell patients. And so it is really a skill that conversation really is something that needs to be practiced. And I think there is a big role for shared decision-making here. And that's probably Absolutely. where, where the year's algorithm really comes in. Cause Instead of just saying, oh, I reckon you probably don't have it, which is usually how the conversations go, you can now say, hey, look, there's a study that has happened, which doesn't say, give us a yes or no answer, but I can maybe put some of the statistics into perspective for you and say, you know, your risk, given what you're describing to me as symptoms and your blood test result, we can say that your risk is, you know, one in 50,000 of having this. And I can tell you in comparison to that, the risk of having a complication from maybe the, the getting the CT performed is a risk of one in 10,000. And so that's what we have now. Yeah. And so now we can have an educated conversation. Obviously those numbers are made up, but you know, that's kind of how the conversation yeah. would go in the context of something like a year's algorithm. And that's where I see it fitting into my clinical practice. And, and as an aside for the registrars, it actually seems like quite plausible OSCE question. I think it will. I mean, it's definitely come up before. Um, <laughs> That's personally where I see it fitting. It's obviously not the be all and end all. It is interesting to note that now we're getting into this adjusting the D-dimer concept. And I think that's probably where things will go in the future. Because yeah. of, as you as you can see, the, the actual rate of PEs is so low. Yeah. We are over scanning. And so we need to amend that, I think, just as a practice, a good practice measure. Can I just raise one more question? I had a patient come in recently, actually, who was uh, 39 weeks pregnant, COVID positive with pleuritic chest pain and was pretty much a project for my shift. And one of the things I tried to pursue was getting the lower limb Dopplers to try and risk stratify the patient because I, I mean, I was also confused by how more likely she was to develop thrombus with COVID. But ignoring that part, I thought maybe if we could get the Dopplers, then at least if we find clot, we can anticoagulate. But I was met with some resistance from the nuclear medicine consultant who was going to be arranging the scan over the weekend. And I think possibly being COVID positive status mm. played into that as well. But she had suggested that in the absence of any clot in the leg, 
would I still pursue the CTPA? And I just wanted to open that up maybe to the respiratory people as well. How often do you see PEs without an identified lower limb thrombus? And, you know, if there is a negative, I know it all depends on the patient, but if you've got a negative Doppler, are you then quite happy to forego the scan or? The negative Doppler is not there to rule out a PE. It's there to diagnose a DVT so then you can avoid doing the CTPA. I think I totally agree. And generally, you know, the way with our algorithm, the reason, particularly for pregnant women, we're sort of pushed sort of ultrasound Doppler to diagnose DVT is so that if we've got something positive there, then we don't need to do the scan because we're going to anticoagulate anyway. But I think if you've got a negative Doppler ultrasound, it still doesn't rule in or out. I agree that I think with you, you were met with some unprecedented challenges in terms of COVID positive. I think Generally, everyone is quite hesitant to scan anyone for anything if they're COVID positive. Being a weekend obviously makes it more difficult as well because the availability of sonographers is lower. And I think to add on to yours to make it even harder is we know that people with COVID are more likely to get PEs. They've got these super high D-dimers. So then you try and put it into the year's algorithm and they're much more likely to have a diagnosis of P. Their D-dimers are going to be high anyway. And so I think on balance of that, you're probably going to end up wanting to scan them just to exclude sort of a PE because they tick all the boxes, especially she was 39 weeks pregnant. She was third trimester. Yeah. She's got every risk factor under the sun. Yeah. For those interested, she, she did have a CTPA and she did not have a PE. It was just COVID pleurisy probably. Yeah. It is important to understand that with our current imaging guidelines on the investigation of PE released by RANSCOG, and there's a couple of other guidelines floating out there from the radiological assessment pathway point of view, the reason for the Dopplers is not to exclude a PE, but to, or exclude a DVT because that's essentially meaningless. What we're trying to do is actually diagnose a DVT because mm-hmm. if, if there is a DVT present, and they've got chest pain and shortness of breath, then you can well, it's in your safely legs. extrapolate that uh, a large proportion of those patients are going to have a PE and the anticoagulation is going to, that's going to be instituted in the context of NIAC therapy is going to be the same. That's the reason the pathway is structured in that manner. It's going to be a constant challenge, I think, is the bottom line. And there is, I think there is a special place for years in that evaluation process. Where that is, I think, is still up for debate. But personally, I've used it a few times now in the context of first trimester pregnancies in patients in whom I do not have an alternative diagnosis for their symptoms, but overall my gestalt is benign illness or, 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 or you know, pregnancy-related symptoms. And nothing of their symptom description strikes me as being prototypical of someone who I would imagine PE. Vanessa, did you have any take-home points just from your perspective? I know we've talked a little bit about where this paper fits in in the grand scheme of things, but I'd be interested in your thoughts. From this paper, I guess my take-home points is fairly similar, you know, with the clinical judgment. I think this provides a framework for people that, you know, early trimester um, in pregnancy. I think using this, it's a reassurance tool that you can say, look, I think your chance of having a PE are quite low based on, you know, the year's algorithm and your D-dimer. So that way, because, you know, your the risk of sort of radiation sort of outweighs, I think that helps you confidently say to the patient, I think we can probably avoid these unnecessary scans because your chances of actually having a PE are going to be quite low. So that's where I think this paper is useful for as a take-home point. But I think similarly, from what I've gathered from this paper as well, is I think a lot of the times, you know, despite us having these algorithms, people go on to scan. And I think it's just to reinforce that we are quite concerned about PEs in pregnant people because it can be sort of quite fatal. And that's the last outcome you want in someone that's otherwise young and healthy. And so I think this just reinforces that even though we do have these algorithms, I think a lot of the time, people will sort of seek extra tests like CTPAs for reassurance. 
And I think, you know, there is no necessary wrong, right or wrong answer, particularly in this patient population. And I think it's one of those things where sometimes even if it, the evidence is you want to avoid all radiation, if you've got someone that you're quite concerned about and they're ticking all the boxes, I think sometimes we do have to investigate them both for clinician peace of mind, but also for that patient, because if they hear the potential of a clot in their lungs, it's very hard to dissuade a pregnant lady. You're not going to do any tests. All right. Thanks for that. That was a really great discussion on the paper. We have our second interlude spot. Um, one of our respiratory staff specialists at Westmead Hospital, uh, Brishti Roy, is going to be speaking to us a little bit on her perspective on things. So, Brishti, if you can take it away. Thank you. I thought I'd just do a short segment of uh, respiratory history. Now, you're all very young, so I don't know if you remember, but there were these funny series of books when I was growing up, which later became a BBC show called Horrible Histories. So I thought I'd do a similar one on medicine. I'm going to focus on plural infection and basically how a simple idea took thousands of years to develop and eventually becomes a logical treatment choice. Uh, and I'll try and incorporate some voices to keep it interesting. So a quick question to you guys. These days, if there's pus in the plural space, what would you or what should you do? Hmm. Get rid of it. Quick question. <laughs> yeah. I would give antibiotics. Yes. <laughs> Not a trick question. So I heard someone say get rid of it. Yeah. So usually... You know, you recommend putting a drain in, starting antibiotics, as you said. And sometimes if it's not draining, we start um, fibrinolytic therapy and then later refer to surgery. So it's a pretty logical choice um, and a logical process now, but it didn't always used to be the case. So let me take you back in time to 400 BC to the time of Hippocrates. And I'm sure everyone knows Hippocrates, of course, was one of the biggest figures in the history of medicine and was the first to describe pleurisy, as, as he did with many other conditions. He described some interesting clinical signs that we continue to note even to this day. So people with chronic suppurative infections, he described having clubbing in the fingers, and we continue to teach this in our registrar exams. He also came up with a really weird sign called Hippocratic succession for large volumes of fluid, which involved grabbing a person by the shoulders and shaking them really hard in order to hear the sloshing of the fluid inside the thorax. Now, I imagine they didn't have lawyers back in those days, because if you did something like that, you would probably be considered assaulting the patient and have a court case on your hands. He also documented some specific symptoms when reviewing people with empyemas and noted that he has pain in his side, fever and shivering. He breathes rapidly and has orthopnea. And these are symptoms that we continue to note to this day when we see patients with pleural infection. He also said that pleuritis that does not clear up in 14 days results in empyema. And this is really interesting because to this day, most of the guidelines, ATS, BTS guidelines, recommend antibiotics in cases of proven or suspected paraneumonic effusion uh, to be at least 14 to 21 days to mop up infection and stop the disease from progressing to a fibrothorax, for example. And it's quite a shame for the people back in 400 BC, because antibiotics, as you know, weren't invented until Alexander Fleming discovered penicillin from a fungus in 1928. So without access to antibiotics back in the day, the initial treatment that was recommended by Hippocrates was a bit strange and off kilter. He recommended treating empyema by draining it through the mouth. 
such as inducing vomiting or even giving laxatives. And I can only imagine that this was because they thought the alimentary and respiratory tracts were directly connected. They didn't know the pleural space was separate. And from a respiratory physician point of view, I'm of the opinion that when they did this and people who were already sick, they probably caused a large proportion of people to aspirate when they induced vomiting, get worse and pass away. But good old Hippocrates realized that this wasn't very effective and later came up with a more modern approach or at least modern for those times. And he advised making an oblique cut into the chest or even removing a piece of rib to make the space bigger and basically came up with the first open drainage system and then plugged the hole with linen gauze so they wouldn't suck air back in. They didn't have imaging back in those days. So how'd they know where to make the incision? Well, they used something called the sign of damp earth where basically he covered the patient's thorax in mud and made the incision in the part of the mud which dried first. I strongly recommend to you guys, don't use mud for that purpose now unless it's a mud mask for a nice body detox. He was also really big on attempting aseptic technique despite the mud, I'm sure he cleaned up afterwards, and advocating sterilizing the empyema space by washing the cavity with oil and warm wine, which in my opinion is a waste of good wine, but I don't imagine they had much else to sterilize the space in those days. These sound like really good ideas from Hippocrates now, drainage, sterilization, but I'm sure a lot of people initially thought that this was all nonsense back in the day. But later, his ideas of draining an empyema were actually supported by anecdotal stories of accidental drainage, or what we might refer to these days as case reports and case series. So an example would be, there was a Roman soldier called Publius Cornelius Rufus, who was suffering from an empyema. He felt pretty awful, as you would if you didn't have a treated uh, pleural infection. And because he thought he was going to die from this illness, he launched himself into battle in a kind of kamikaze move, and then was hit by an enemy arrow in the chest, luckily on the side of his empyema, which then caused the pus to drain out from his thoracic cavity and greatly improved his condition, and his side went on to win the battle. He lived a long life and had a pretty successful military career. And eventually, incisions and open drainages for empyemas later became the norm. Further advances beyond incision and drainage were only later made during the Renaissance period when they started doing autopsies on patients uh, and better understood anatomy and identified the pleura was separate and separated in uh, the left and the right thoracic cavity. So you could work on one side without compromising the other side. There was a guy called Ambrosi Pare, who was a leading battlefield surgeon who ended up pioneering a series of instruments used for the drainage of effusions and then also advocating sterilizing the space. So washing the pleura out with a disinfecting solution, he used an injection of detergent of barley water and honey of rose. So I imagine he saved the wine for himself rather than using it on the patient. Later on, other early surgeons suggested inserting a perforated cannula to drain the effusion, so the first notion of using a chest drain. And eventually they moved away from open incision and removing ribs in order um, to instead perform repeat thoracentesis and reduce the exposure of opening up the pleural space to the outside environment. Centuries later, examination of those with pleural infections became more refined. They finally decided that shaking a patient to listen to fluid wasn't a great idea. And Leopold Auenbrugger pioneered chest percussion as part of physical examination, which we continue to make our registrar trainees do. He said, the thorax of a healthy person sounds when struck. If a sonorous region of the chest appears on percussion entirely destitute of the natural sound, then disease exists in that reason. So basically what he's saying is a dull sound is a bad sound in terms of the chest. 
or it's a liver. And finally, with the invention of the stethoscope by René Leinek in 1816, the presence of liquid in the thorax was diagnosed at an even earlier stage. It's really interesting because Leinek's hobby was apparently carving flutes. And he put this flute carving to great use when he came across a very obese woman where you can imagine percussion is useless in diagnosing pathology because uh, everything sounds the same. So he rolled up a piece of paper into the shape of a flute and realized when he put his ear to it, he could much better auscultate or hear rather than with, with his ear to her chest directly and eventually use this to come up with the idea of a stethoscope. Despite these advances in examination and better procedural techniques and better sterilization, they were still putting needles into livers, spleens or lungs. And Leonek and some of his friends eventually decided that the fourth intercostal space and eventually something we now know as the triangle of safety was the best bet for safe drainages and water seal drainages were eventually invented later in the 19th century. So here we are in the 21st century. We have stethoscopes, we have x-rays, CT, ultrasound, all to help us diagnose empyemas. As you rightly said before, we use antibiotics, intercostal catheters, and even minimally invasive surgery to treat empyemas. But when you think about it, we haven't really deviated much from the original ideas of Hippocrates, which involved drainage and evacuating and disinfecting the pleural space. We just have better equipment to do it, and we do it in a safer manner. Only in the last few years has the introduction of fibrinolytics or TPA DNAs following the MIS-2 study has changed the way we manage empyemas. And current research now in pleural infection is trying to prevent it altogether. And maybe in a few hundred years with further advances in this field, there may be a podcast or something similar by someone else who does better voices than me that looks back and laughs at how pleural infection used to be a problem because they finally found a way to stop it from occurring. Thanks so much for that, Brishni. History of medicine is something that's lost on so many of us, especially in ED, given how pragmatic we tend to be with things. So last but not least, got Kit here for another month of Kit's Corner. Thanks, Caroline, and thanks, Pramod. What a great episode. There are a few things more discussed in PE and DVT than the oral contraceptive pill. And for those of you that know me, you'll know that I enjoy the etymology of drug names. And although I have to admit that I haven't been able to verify this as a fact, I have heard it said multiple times that many of the brand names for oral contraceptive pills, Brenda, Diane, so forth, are taken from the names of the wives of the CEOs and board members of the pharmaceutical companies that developed them. Now, to me, this begs a food for thought question. In today's society, with growing diversity and hopefully increased female representation on our boards, can we expect some alternative OCP names? Would we be seeing women started on Steve or Greg? That's great, thanks, Kit. <laughs> So thanks everyone for joining us uh, in another episode um, for the Westmead ED Journal Club. As always, we are our ears are open to any feedback that you guys might have and any thoughts and comments, and we'll do our best to answer any questions on our next podcast. You can contact us at our Gmail, which is westmeadedjournalclub at gmail.com. Feel free to send us any of your thoughts and comments on this episode. We really hope you enjoy it. We had some great presenters this week. It's cool.